Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Well, how many of you are, uh, how many of you are feeling saved this morning? You know, trick question, huh? Like, hmm, I don't know. All, all, the, all the morning people are like, praise the Lord, right? And all the night owls are like, I don't, I don't know. We, we don't typically, if we're honest, wake up feeling saved. We wake up feeling tired, fatigued, um, anxious, but we typically don't wake up feeling saved. I like what uh, Pastor John Piper says when he says, every morning I wake up and I got to get saved all over again. Now, I know some of you are like, it's not what we feel, it's what's real. But for the reality for a lot of us is we don't wake up feeling very Christian at all. And my prayer for us has been that that we'd get saved all over again. You know, for those of us this morning who have been Christians for a really long time, we would return to that, that first love, that, that affection for Christ we had when we first came to know Christ. And for those of us who, who don't know Christ or are perhaps new to Christ, that we would genuinely wake up to the reality of the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know, this morning as I was uh, preparing and or thinking about uh, meeting with y'all, I was reminded of a, a brother, my first spiritual mentor and pastor, Pastor Paul Fife. Uh, 20 years ago, I was in my early 20s. I was your classic angst-driven 20-something, working my way through college. I'm serving, teaching, and leading in the local church, and Paul saw me. He saw me, and he, he invited me to start meeting with him early in the morning once a week. And I could vividly remember my first meeting with Paul because Paul said, it's, it's very simple, Daniel, my goal for us. I, I want you to know that I'm a man that wakes up every morning, crawls out of bed, gets on his knees, and cries out to God because I desperately need Jesus. And we, we went to our knees and we prayed, and that's what we typically did. We just kneeled and prayed. We'd share life. We'd laugh, and, and we would cry out to God. And I, I learned what, it, what desperation looks like. I, I've never wept more than on my knees alongside Pastor Paul. Well, ironically enough, we, we ended up both in Louisville, Kentucky. You know, he was finishing seminary, I was starting seminary, and after a few years, um, we both were sent off to start churches. That had been a dream of Paul's, to start a church in the inner city, and he went to the inner city of Philadelphia, and I started a church here in the inner city of Louisville, Kentucky. You know, my church, after several years, grew to a, a large church of nearly 4,000 people. Pa- Paul's church never hit above 40 people and failed after just a few years. Those that knew Paul well knew that he suffered from severe anxiety disorder. He would be prayer walking or um, going down the street, sharing evangelism with people, and, and he would have panic attacks literally in the midst of sharing his faith. He suffered from debilitating depression, and, and he died in his early 50s. And many people would be tempted to look at the life of Paul Fife and say, and see only failure. But I see fruit. 
I see kingdom fruitfulness because I see behind Paul Fife a legacy of men and women who learned how to cry out to God because we desperately need Jesus. You know, the great need in the church today is a movement away from mere devotion to manly desperation. Now, now when you hear the words desperate man, it, it doesn't really fit together, does it? You know, maybe desperate housewives, right? But, but desperate man, it, it doesn't really fit. So let me, let me define what manly desperation is all about. Now, manly desperation is an assessment, a, a true, a proper assessment of, of God's holiness and my sinfulness and the recognition that Jesus is enough. God is holy, I am sinful, but Jesus, you, you are enough. I mean, we only really experience the, the joy of our salvation when we recognize God's holiness and our sinfulness and the, the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I mean, really at the heart of man challenge is the need to recognize that, that we are man failures, right? And really the, the prerequisite for a Jesus-driven man challenge is acknowledging I have failed. I am a man failure. But again, man, man failure is not the best recruiting tool, right? Try, try that with your brothers. You know, hey, hey, bro, you want to go to man failure? Hey, you got to check this out, man. We do this thing. It's, it's called man failure. I mean, it might work as a good recruiting tool for our wives. More wives might be sending husbands to man failure. You no know, man wants to be on a losing team. No man aims for defeat. No man wants to be a loser. But fundamental to our faith is I am lost. And, and not only I am lost, but I have lost at this whole thing called the game of life. You know, I, I've tried to win living apart from God in relationship to my home, my work, my finances, my marriage. And it, and it just, it doesn't work. It's not working. I want to win. I mean, what is Christ doing on the cross? I mean, it's the ultimate symbol of losing. It's the ultimate symbol of defeat. What he's doing up there on the cross is he's taking all our losses, all our defeats upon himself. And the good news this morning is we get his victory. We get his win. You know, the, the paradox of Christianity is we are only strong and right when we recognize that we are weak and wrong. Why are we here? We're here because we want to be strong and right and good and faithful in every area of our lives. But we're only strong and right when we recognize that we are weak and wrong. We're only strong and right when we recognize that we are weak and wrong. We are only strong and right when we recognize that we are weak and wrong. Now, when a preacher says something three times, it, it means he either doesn't know what to say next or it's really important. This is really important. Let's say this together. We are only strong and right when we recognize that we are weak and wrong. See, the Bible doesn't play games with the weaknesses and wrongs of its characters. The Bible doesn't spin the, the flaws or failings of its heroes. Moses was a, a murderer. 
Noah was a drunk. Jonah was a racist. Jacob was a liar. Elijah hit the wall and burned out. Jeremiah suffered from debilitating sadness. He wrote lamentations, essentially crying all the time. And the, the story continues in the New Testament, right? John Mark deserted Paul. Pete, young Timothy had ulcers. And, and as we learned, and as we're learning over the past few weeks, Peter, strong Peter, bailed on Jesus in his time of greatest need. And that's, that's both of indictment on all of our pretending and performing, but it's also an invitation this morning. It's an invitation to get real. And that's my hope, that the, the real you, the real us, would encounter the real God and experience salvation afresh. And so what we're going to do is we're going to drill down on a few passages in the, the book of John. We're going to pick up with John chapter 13. And we're going we're gonna to look at the failure of Peter, you know, in three snapshots. And, and hopefully unpack um, how to process in light of the gospel our failures in the past. How to, how to face our pain and suffering and failures in the present. And be better prepared um, as, as men who follow Christ for the failures that are ahead of us in the future. And so let's pick up with John chapter 13 and Peter's failure predicted. We're going to look at the prediction of Peter's failure, the actual experience of Peter's failure, and the redemption of Peter's failure. And so in John chapter 13, verse, beginning with verse 1, um, the context is Jesus is headed to the cross. John 13 is a, a turning point in the book of John. And we read, before the Passover celebration. And so this is the night before Jesus was crucified. Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. And he had loved his disciples during his earth, earthly ministry on earth. And now, and now he loved them to the very end. So Jesus has... Uh, just wash their feet, the, the ultimate symbol of, of servant leadership. And he's let them in once again on the reality that he's come from the Father and he's returning to the Father and he's headed to the cross. You know, over and over again throughout all the Gospels, the, the essential message that Jesus prepared his disciples for um, regarding the future was the Son of Man must suffer and die, but after three days he will, he will rise again. And so Peter responds to this, and Simon Peter asks, verse 36, Lord, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will, you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? I, I love Peter. Whenever there's a problem or whenever there's a, a big moment, he just has this like burst of testosterone, and he just says whatever's on his mind. Why not now? I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Now, Peter, Peter straight up is one of the manliest men in the scriptures. I mean, he's often caricatured, but he's like second in command, right? I mean, he's, he's the leader. Everyone's following Peter's lead. And so when Jesus talks about this, this coming action, this, this coming crisis, the reality of the cross, Peter's, Peter's immediately ready to man up. I, I'm ready to die for you. 
And again, look at, look at verse 37 or 38. Jesus says, die for me? I mean, essentially, essentially Jesus is like, you, you don't know what you're talking about. I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Jesus is like, look, Peter, you got a lot of leadership under the hood, but you don't know what you're talking about. And Peter's failure here is rooted in a twofold reality. First off, Peter has a shallow understanding of the story of Jesus. You know, Sam so helpfully unpacked this reality last week for us. But the, the, second, the second truth is that Peter um, had an overestimation of his own abilities. He, he was overly confident in his own commitment to Jesus. I mean, first, Peter had a, a shallow understanding of the story of Jesus. You know, the, the story of Jesus is a story of suffering and then glory. I mean, that, that's the pattern we see woven throughout the scriptures, suffering, then glory. And it's not only the pattern woven throughout the scriptures, it's the pattern woven through our lives. Now, anything great in life requires sacrifice and suffering. You, you want a great marriage? You must sacrifice. You must suffer. You want great children, a great family? It calls for sacrifice and suffering. You want a great job, a great career? It calls for sacrifice and suffering. And the greatest thing of all is our salvation in Christ. And at the heart of our salvation is divine sacrifice and suffering. You know, to deny, to deny suffering in life is really um, at the root of a lot of like modern pathologies. And when we, when we run away from suffering, we're displaying a, a savior that runs away from the cross. God calls us to faith and he calls us to suffer and he calls us to suffer well. You know, like, like Peter, we've all failed to understand God's ways, our suffering, then glory. And when we, we get hit by crisis or when we fail or when we find ourselves in, in sin or besetting sin, we ask things like, why is this happening to me? Why, why me, Lord? And it, it's very easy for us to dictate to God our plans rather than submit to his plans. When we find ourselves in the midst of failure, when we find ourselves in the midst of suffering, we're in a very vulnerable place because we can be tempted to drift away from the reality of God's comfort and his presence. You know, Peter's failure here is a shallow understanding of the story of God. And the second thing we see is that not only did Peter have a shallow understanding of the story of God, but Peter was presumptuous and prideful and overestimated his own commitment and abilities. You know, Peter, from a, from a human perspective, was naturally gifted. He was a natural leader. He was, he was what many call a born leader. But he focused too much on his natural strengths rather than the grace and gift of God. And that's a temptation for all of us. Your, your natural strengths, your natural devotion will only get you so far. But in that time of, of testing, they will fail you, and you'll find yourself in denial every time, everywhere you find yourself. You know, P Peter's problem, the essential word of Jesus to Peter is, is stop being so confident in your commitment to me. 
and start being confident in my commitment to you. Die for me. You don't know yourself and you don't know me. This isn't about you, Peter. This is about my commitment to you. This is my story. This is my script. This is my cross. You can't handle what's about to come. And so by the grace of God, we need to cry out to God and say, God, humble me. Help me not to double down on my strengths, but help me to recognize my own limitations, my own weaknesses, my own failings. Help me to see every time there's a failure before me is, is there go I except for the grace of God. But again, look at verse 1 of 13. I haven't been able to get over this verse. I, I've never really noticed it as much as I've had this week. Jesus had loved his disciples during his earthly ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. I mean, that, that's the context. Here are, here are failing disciples. I mean, this isn't just Peter's problem. You know, in Mark, we read, Jesus says, all of you will desert me. I mean, Peter just represents in his pride and his failure and his shallow understanding of the gospel. He represents all the disciples and he represents all of us here this morning. And, and Jesus knowing Peter would fail him. Jesus knowing all the disciples would fail him. Jesus knowing our failures here this morning, this moment. He loved them to the very end. He loved them, it can also be translated to the, to the uttermost. It's the same word used when Jesus says, it is finished from the cross. Jesus loves us completely from beginning to end. Jesus loves you to the very end. Jesus loves you just as much on your best day as he does your worst day. Jesus loves you when you crush it, when you're killing it for the kingdom. And Jesus loves you when you fail and you're defeated. So here, here Peter's failure is predicted. Now let's look at the experience of Peter's failure. What happened? What happened on that night in which, which our Lord was betrayed? Peter, Peter followed. They, they took the Lord, but he, he follows at a distance. And they, they took Jesus into the high priest's house. And out in the courtyard, Peter started mixing it up around a fire with some other soldiers. In, in verse 25 of John chapter 18, Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire warning himself, they asked him again, you're, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it, saying, no, no, I'm not. But, but one of the household slaves of the high priest, a, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it. And immediately a rooster crowed. Luke 22 paints the picture a little more dramatically. It says that, that Jesus came out of the high priest's house and, and he was walking across the courtyard and he looks across the courtyard and sees Peter, locks eyes with Peter and the rooster crows. And Peter wept bitterly. He was, he was ruined. He came undone. I mean, can you imagine you know, you're all in, all out. You're a part of the, the inner circle of the Messiah. And on his night of greatest need, you push eject. You bail. 
And, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Peter back together again. He, he was ruined emotionally, spiritually. He, he was undone. What do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves in the midst of failure? You know, some of you are, are haunted by your failures of the past. Some of you this morning wake up feeling like a complete and total failure. Some of us are daily living in fear of failure. You know, we, we call it productivity, right? You know, there, there's high-functioning anxiety and there's low-functioning anxiety. Many, many of you are here because you are high-functioning anxiety. You can get stuff done. It's hard for you to even imagine getting things done apart from fear and anxiety. The, the fear of failure. Failing at work, failing in your career. But what do we do when we find ourselves in the midst of failure? What, what do we do when, when life doesn't go down as, as we expected it to go down? What happens when we get that unexpected news from a doctor? What happens when all of a sudden our, our, our wife says, enough? What happens when, you know, it, you're, you're running the course, right? And it's all going well, and your, your children have moved from little terrorists to like these wonderful adult Christians. And then you, you hear news of a, of a divorce or their denial of the faith. And your body's just riddled with shame. Like, I'm a student of the scriptures, but I'm a student of people as well young and old, it's not a matter of if you fail. It's a matter of when. And how will you handle your failure? The more important question is, what does Jesus do with our failure? And the answer is Jesus, Jesus redeems our failure. Let's look at the redemption of the failure of Jesus or the, the failure of Peter. Verse 1 of John chapter 21 Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. And so um, he predicted uh, his suffering and his death and his resurrection. It goes down just as he foretold. He's betrayed. He's handed over unjustly. He's crucified on the cross. All of his disciples bail him. And on the third day, a dead man got up and walked. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And there's these appearings of Jesus. And he starts appearing to his disciples. And they're dumbfounded. They don't even know what to make of it. And here's a, another appearing. He appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. And verse 3, as usual, Peter takes the lead and says, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. Because as usual, the disciples are following the lead of Peter. So, so they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. So on top of all of the failures of the disciples, here's a, another failed fishing trip. You know, the, the word nothing here is the same word nothing that's used in John chapter 15, verse 5, when we read, apart from me, you can do nothing. Isn't there a tension in that? Because we know that apart from Jesus, we can do something. You know, we're, we're competent. We can get stuff done. I was a pastor for 17 years. I know it's possible to get things done in the church apart from Jesus. I mean, the, the real truth is you can build a church in the flesh. You can preach a sermon in the flesh. You can serve in the flesh. 
You can even evangelize in the flesh. And God will, will build despite us, but we can't build anything lasting. We can't build anything of great value apart from him. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And what we see here is that our, our failures and our fallenness and our weaknesses and our wrongs don't disqualify us from Jesus pursuing us. In fact, our failures and weaknesses qualify us for this, this very pursuit. In Mark 2.17, we read, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, what's fascinating about the pursuit of Jesus, of his failing disciples, is Jesus pursues his disciples in the midst of their failure. And, and at work. You know, he, he doesn't wait for them to come to the temple or some holy gathering. He, mit, he meets them in the midst of their grind and their failures. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, it's one thing for us to imagine God meeting us here in this morning at Man Challenge. But, but quickly we leave, right? And we go to the grind and the hunger games of work. Does God meet us there? And the answer is absolutely. There is no dichotomy between some sacred space and secular space. All of space is sacred now because King Jesus reigns over all. And he pursues us relentlessly wherever we find ourselves. You know, they're, they're not meeting up in some prayer gathering. They're not, they're, they're not meeting up in some Bible study where they're eagerly seeking to understand the pattern of suffering and glory that's woven throughout the Old Testament. And they're just waiting. It's coming. It's coming. The Lord will be coming. No, they have failed as disciples. And now they're, they're failing once again as fishermen. They caught nothing. Verse 4. But early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. So here Jesus appears to them, and they, they fail to even recognize him, probably because he appears so ordinary. And, and Jesus' first word is simply, he called out to them, Friend, have, haven't you any fish? Got a bite? And I have to believe that this is like Jesus grinning on the seashore. You got, you got a bite? You, you catch anything? Unless you're Jesus, this isn't the best question to ask a group of fishermen early in the morning. No, no, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. <laughs> Don't you love it when you're, when you're grinding at work and someone says, hey, I got an idea. No, you hate that. And so the first miracle here is that they even respond to Jesus. But when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. And then it clicks. Because this isn't the first time this has happened. And we read in verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, the author of John, said to Peter, it's, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he, and he jumped into the water. Now, P Peter hears it's the Lord, and his immediate reaction is to throw on his clothes and jump in the water. He dives in, and you can just picture Peter splashing in the water like some kind of golden retriever, and he, and he gets to the shore, and he's probably panting, and he's heaving, and his hands are on his knees, and Jesus takes Peter, wet, cold Peter, into his arms, and I got to believe they were laughing. 
And I got to believe there were tears in his eyes. The, the, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And they, they have an ordinary meal. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And they're standing in this loose semicircle around Jesus. And they can't believe what they see. And no one dared say, says a word. None of, the, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They, they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, so what's going on in this moment of redemption? Now what's going on is we see that, that re the redemption of our failures does not begin with us you know, manning up and achieving it begins with Jesus manning up and receiving us. It, does, it doesn't begin with us putting our, our best foot forward. It begins with Jesus pursuing us. God's pursuit, his call, doesn't begin with our achieving, but with our receiving from him through Jesus. You know, the, the redemption of our failure doesn't begin with us figuring out our doctrine and um, getting our devotion right and finally becoming the disciples we're supposed to be. It begins with Jesus pursuing us right where we are, encountering us, meeting us at the seashore. And just as Jesus does with the disciples, he, he does with all of us. His call doesn't begin with him calling us to bring our spiritual resumes before him, but it's, it's solely an act of grace. God's grace is his wonderful acceptance of us, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because he gives it freely at Christ's expense. And we get grace upon grace. I love what the, the late Brennan Manning, uh, how he breaks down the call of grace. He says, grace calls out, you're not just a disillusioned old man who may die soon, a middle-aged woman stuck in a job and desperately wanting to get out, a young person feeling the fire in the belly begin to grow cold. You may be insecure, inadequate, mistaken, or pot-bellied, Death, panic, depression, and disillusionment may be near you, but you're not just that. You're accepted. Never confuse your perception of yourself with the mystery that you really are accepted. The call of God, the pursuit of God is always a call of grace. That's why Peter runs. Whenever you come to grips with grace or whenever you find yourself in the, the grip of grace, it results in an extreme reaction. Peter dives in. And that's what it means to repent and to believe. It means I give up. I give up and I give in. I mean, some of you are struggling. You're like, I'm, I'm trying to understand that whole faith thing and the repent and believe thing. And I, I, want, I want what these other men have. Give up and give in. And Jesus takes us in his arm. No matter what we've done, and no matter what has been done to us. The reason Peter is able to run to Jesus is because Peter gets grace for the first time. 
Jesus loves us from beginning to end. Our, our failures, according to the gospel, are not final. Our, our failures are opportunity for gospel encounters. Our, our losses are opportunities for gospel lessons. Now, Peter continued to screw up. If you study the life of Peter, as we will, we'll see he just found himself in, in one fail after another. Even in the early church, when the church is expanding, right? And people love to romanticize the early church. Like, I wish we could just go back to the early church. I don't know if you do. There were just as many failures in the early church as there are in the church today. So what are some of the lessons we can take out of this? Well, Peter and First Peter unpacks some of the lessons. And I want to I give you a picture that I think is important. I mean, we, we need to understand that, that the pattern of Jesus... Who Jesus is and what he has done should always drive us to the pardon of Jesus. And through the pardon of Jesus, we come to understand the power of Jesus. And it's important to understand this distinction. P Peter unpacks the pardon of, pattern of Jesus for us in 1 Peter 2.21. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And th this is a... This is a verse that encapsulates the reality of what it means to be a disciple. You know, a disciple, very simply, is someone who wants to be with Jesus in order to become like him. Right? Sometimes people make a distinction. They're like, well, there are Christians, and then there's varsity disciples. The scriptures make no such distinction. A Christian, a follower of Christ, a disciple, they're all the same thing. It's all someone who wants to be with Jesus in order to become like him. That's what Christianity is really all about. It's about the pattern, the life, the example of Jesus Christ. Any of y'all familiar with what would Jesus do? You ever heard WWJ? My, my kids brought home a bracelet and they're like, Dad, Dad, do you know what this means? I'm like, yeah, I know what that means. And what would Jesus, it's a great thing. We should ask ourselves, what, what would Jesus do? But that's not enough. What would Jesus do should always drive us to ask, what has Jesus done? For every, one time, for every one time we, we man up to the example of Jesus, a thousand more times we should look up to the cross of Jesus and be driven to his pardon. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, if, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous. So he's on the cross taking our unrighteousness, but we get his righteousness. It's called the, the great exchange. Not only are we forgiven, but the good news is we get the fullness of Christ. Christ's life of perfect obedience, him always manning up, is now our manning up in Christ Jesus. His victory is our victory. That's the, the good news. And that's what we understand when we become a Christian. God, you're holy and I'm sinful, but Jesus, you're enough. Do you remember that moment? When you realize Christ is enough, Christ died for me. I can live now because Christ lives through me. And when, when Peter first encountered Christ, he, he realized that. He said, get away from me because I'm a sinner. And Jesus welcomed him in. But the same thing that happens in the life of Peter happens in our life. We realize, wait, wait, God is far more holy than I realized. And I'm far more sinful than I've ever recognized. And that's where we're stuck with a challenge. And here's a picture of that challenge. And when we first become a Christian, we recognize there's a, 
an awareness of God's holiness, an awareness of my flesh and sinfulness. God, you are holy, I'm sinful, but Jesus, you're enough. But as we grow in the Christian life, again, we realize he's far greater than we've ever comprehended, and I'm far more wretched and sinful, and we're, we're left with a gap. And the question is, what do we do with that gap? Well, you know what we do with that gap. We pretend, right? We, we perform. We make excuses. We, we downplay. We shift blame. But the reality of the Christian life is in the next chart, in the invitation. As the more sinful I recognize I am, I can cheer up because I'm far more loved than I ever imagined or ever dreamed. And who gets magnified? Who gets magnified, men? Christ gets magnified. That's why Paul says, I resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why Paul says, I boast only in the cross of Christ. Why? Because in the cross, I find the answer to my sin, the answer to my failures, and the joy of knowing Christ. You know, Monday, I, I was working on this, this passage, and I got a phone call, and another brother had, had fallen. And I, I gave him a call, and, and we met up very quickly. And he, he shared with me his failure, how he's, his marriage has fallen apart. And he's like, I, I failed failed. There's no hope for me. How can I, how can I ever recover from this? I just looked at him. I was like, man, if there's no hope for you, there's no hope for any of us. If the gospel is not big enough for our failures, then why did Christ come? If it was just a matter of us getting our devotion and doctrine right, then why did Christ come? Paul says, I don't set aside the gospel for if righteousness could be gained through the law, through our devotion, then Christ died for nothing. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to help dispel the, the lies of religion that say you get what you pay for. What comes around goes around. You know, God helps those who help themselves. The message of grace is an entirely different word. word. You, don't, you don't get what you paid for. You get what someone else paid for. God helps those who can't help themselves. What, what goes around, comes around, and stops at the foot of the cross, never to come around again. That's, that's the word of grace. And, and Jesus, our king, our perfect pattern, meets us at the seashore and still says, no matter where you find yourself, no matter what you've done, and no matter what's been done to you, come follow me. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we need you. Lord, we need you. And we are so thankful that your mercies are new every morning. So Lord, help us, help us to man up to your mercies. Help us not just put our best foot forward, but by your grace, we can put our worst foot forward. Animate the, the table conversations this morning. And Lord, help us to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but help us also to weep with those who are weeping.
We pray, Lord, that, that we would um, experience afresh the reality of your pardon, the fact that we are forgiven, that, Lord, we would have confidence in your spirit and the strength and energy that you provide, that you do guide us to, to follow the pattern of Jesus, but you provide for us your Holy Spirit and your power. Jesus, we thank you for living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died and giving us life. Help us, help us to experience that life afresh so we don't need to be told to witness this morning, so we have something to genuinely witness to. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.